We're going to be in Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. If you don't have a Bible or you, for some reason, can't open the one in the pew back in front of you, uh, there are the words to our sermon text are, uh, are available inside the bulletin that you received when you arrived. So whatever the means may be, whether it be your own Bible, Bible in the pew rack, or the bulletin, uh, just make sure to have those words open before you as we prepare to enter, enter into God's Word. Okay. But before we do that, let's pray, and pray doing so, knowing that we are entering into God's Word by which He must speak to His church, by which He must minister to us supernaturally. Therefore, it is only right for us to ask God's hand upon us as we open His Word. Let's pray. Lord, we open Your Word now, and we do so with expectation that the same power by which You raised Your Son, Jesus Christ, from the dead is the same power by which you speak to your people through your word and you even give new life to us through Christ. You bring us from death to life. And so, Lord, we pray and ask your mercy upon us through your word, through showing us Christ as your word reveals him and ourselves as we desperately need him. And we pray this in his name. Amen. About a week ago, I was captivated by the ongoing saga that was that large container ship stuck in the Suez Canal. I imagine I'm not the only one. Um, This large container ship that uh, I think had a size of like uh, 220,000 metric tons and could hold as many as eighteen to 24,000 shipping containers, was traveling through the Suez Canal when a sudden sandstorm apparently tilted it to the side and caused it to run aground, thus blocking this vital shipping way. As the saga unfolded, there was incredible, incredible ingenuity on the part of those who worked to free this large ship, which was named the Ever Given, by the way. Uh, so the, there were dredgers and diggers and tugboat crews and uh, all sorts of experts from the Suez Canal Authority and all sorts of experts literally from all over the world who were coming together to work in unified uh, effort in order to free this ship from the mud that she was trapped in. But that's not the only place where you saw ingenuity as you watch this saga unfold. I saw a lot of ingenuity in the comments and the social commentary or the internet commentary that others were offering about this. Some of the highlights were things like uh, somebody took a picture uh, from a, a satellite image of the ship blocking the canal and somebody commented, no matter how bad your day was today, at least your mistakes weren't visible from space. Another one that I saw that was perhaps the funniest was one guy who commented, do what you'll love and you'll never work a day in your life. And what this ship loves is blocking international shipping uh, lanes. But for as humorous as we found this to be, or at least as I found it to be, a more sobering reality began to sink in. If the Suez Canal remained blocked for weeks, it could significantly disrupt the global shipping enterprise. 
for every day, for even every hour that this ship remained stuck. You could count on the prices of consumer goods rising. You could count on uh, increased oil prices. And you could count on global, the global economy feeling the strain and the pinch of the Suez Canal not, e- not being able to be navigated. You know, it's funny how the background, the, the more information that you glean about something changes how you see that event. In this instance, it goes from comedy to concern. What do you think of when you think of Easter? Naturally, you probably think of, at least in a religious or Christian sense, you think of the cross, you think of the resurrection. But today, I want us to probe further back and gain a greater understanding of the background of this man who was crucified. Of this Jesus Christ who was resurrected. And I am confident that in doing so, this will reorient how we understand the cross and the empty tomb. And even change how we understand ourselves. When we understand who Jesus is, we move from common observance of Easter to awestruck wonder before this God-man who died and was resurrected. If we're going to understand Jesus' cross and resurrection, we must know the fullness of who He is and totally surrender our lives to Him. Let me say that again. If we're going to understand Jesus' cross and resurrection, we must know the fullness of who He is and totally surrender our lives to Him. Let's read Matthew 17, verses 1 through 13. In fact, follow along. I'll read it. You look at it intently. Follow along what's happening and see the background of the Jesus who would be crucified and resurrected. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain... Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. (laughs) 
Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. If we're going to understand Jesus' cross and resurrection, we must know the fullness of who he is and totally surrender our lives to him. Three things we're going to see in this passage. Who Jesus is and how we get him wrong. What Jesus has done and why we don't see it. And then lastly, we'll consider our total need for the true Jesus. First, who Jesus is and how we get him wrong. Now, as we dive into Matthew chapter 17, having not been making our way through Matthew week by week, there's a danger in kind of jumping into the middle of the story and not knowing what is going on, as if you pick up a movie an hour in and try to piece everything together before the thing concludes over the next 45 minutes. So allow me just to briefly share with you what is happening in Matthew. Throughout his gospel, Matthew is giving very careful attention to try to illustrate for his audience how Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament anticipates in the Messiah. And so he wants them to see that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. He is, in fact, the Son of God sent by God the Father. And this is the paramount reality about Jesus that we must all understand and grasp. It is as if the contours and the shapes of the Old Testament for throughout, uh, throughout its, 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 its thousands of years and throughout the, the uh, 39 books of the Old Testament, they're developing this picture that is starting to be seen and these contours that are starting to be understood that outline the coming Messiah. And now Matthew comes on the scene and says, that Messiah that your Old Testament anticipates is Jesus. And so Jesus, working to properly orient his disciples' understanding of who he is, he takes Peter and James and John up on this mountain where they will learn more about this Jesus that they have begun to follow. You see, they found Jesus to be fascinating, and this might be the boat that you're in. You might find Jesus to be fascinating, or you might find him even to be, you might not admit it in a place like this, annoying, a bother. You don't really quite know what the significance of him is. And so you might be like the disciples where you find him fascinating or you find him at least at the very basic level curious. But the thing Jesus wants us all to see is that he is not just fascinating. But for us to rightly know him, we must understand that he is undeniable in his divinity. He is God. So you see verses 1 through 3. Jesus takes them up on this high mountain. And then verse 2, that's verse 1. Verse 2, it picks up and says, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. I don't really know how to further explain what we just read. Jesus walks up this mountain as a man, just like Peter and James and John. And yet he gets to the top, and I I don't know if like the wind started blowing, the sun started shining. I don't know what happens, but Jesus' face begins to shine brightly like the sun. And his clothes became that, that bright white light that you would turn your face away from. And the disciples are seeing, okay, there's something about this guy. He's not like us. And then you see Moses and Elijah come on the scene, and they just start talking with Jesus. Peter, James, and John are probably in the boat that I would have been in that instance. A, terrified, and B, like, what are you guys talking about? Strange place for you guys to come have a conversation, and why are we here? Well, he's talking to two pillars of the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah. Now, remember, Matthew is trying to help his audience understand that Jesus is the one to whom the Old Testament points. And so Moses and Elijah come on the scene, 
and Jesus conversing with them understand that Moses and Elijah are two key pillars of the Old Testament. Moses is the one through whom God gave his law to his people. Moses went up on a mountain and received the Ten Commandments and the law. Elijah is understood to be like, like, like kind of the figurehead or a figurehead amongst the great Old Testament prophets of God. Even to the point that Elijah's greatest moment of beholding the glory of God was in 1 Kings 18, where on Mount Carmel he called down fire from heaven to consume offerings, uh, proving that Elijah's God was the one true God as opposed to the false prophets of Baal. And so you've got Moses representing the Old Testament law, Elijah representing the Old Testament prophets, and them talking to Jesus is as if Jesus is the one who completes it all. And so, we have to understand that if we're going to understand our Old Testaments, if we're going to understand Moses and Elijah, their lives in service to God were anticipating Jesus Christ. He is the destination to which the roadmap of our Old Testament takes us. Here's where we have to pause a moment. This is why this is important, okay? You might say, okay, I, I get it. Jesus, like, it's Sunday school, right? The answer to every question is Jesus. Who's the most important figure? Jesus. Who, who does the Old Testament point to? Jesus. You know, like, okay, I get it. Well, here's why it's of critical importance for us. And sometimes how, though we think we might get it intellectually, we don't quite get it uh, affectionately from our hearts and from our souls. The rest, Matthew, this event, the rest of the Gospels, our, our whole Bibles give us no room for wavering when it comes to what we regard as the true identity of Jesus. There's no place for, well, I think he's a good teacher, and other people think he might be God, and what's true for you is true for you, what's true for me is true for me. Jesus stands at the top of the mountain as both God in the flesh and in supernatural glory and does not give us this option. So in one sense, Matthew presents this for us to see, and then he forces us to ask the question, and what do you make of this Jesus? And dear Christian, we must understand that Peter, James, and John, they needed to know the identity of Jesus, whom they would soon see crucified and resurrected. And we'll get to that point in just a moment. But they needed to know this because the life marked out for them as followers of Christ would be a life that was, in some ways, challenging solely because they were Christians. And they needed a Jesus who was not just a good teacher, but who was a glorious God, who is a glorious God. In fact, may I just submit to you, I don't know about you, but I know me. And I think I am fairly emblematic or fairly uh, uh, symbolic of the entirety of the human condition. And here's what I mean. The problems that I carry, the problems that I have to navigate in my life, They are too great for Jesus to be of true life-altering power to me if he is nothing but a good teacher. I need him to be a glorious God. The problems in your life, Jesus is of little value to you in helping you in navigating the trials that lay before you if he is but a good teacher. But if he is a glorious God, then that changes everything. You and I don't need a good teacher to offer us a pat on the back. We need a great God who reaches down from heaven and pulls us out of the grave. So Peter, 
re-entering in our story here in verse 4, Peter, who, if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know Peter was kind of one of those people who would see something and talk before thinking. And uh, it's not uncommon, right, from, for many of us. Well, Peter sees Jesus in this transfigured state. He sees Moses. He sees Elijah. And he says, okay, there's something really important happening here. So Peter said to Jesus, and maybe one of the great understatements that we see in Peter's life, Lord, it is good that we are here. Look at that in verse 4. Lord, it's good we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And you can kind of hear Peter saying this in a hurried manner, right? Like, okay, there's something happening here. What do I do? Uh, okay, Peter, say something. Say something really important. Show your devotion. Show that you really believe this. Show this is really cool. Show them that your devotion is unwavering. Uh, how about I build some tents? <laughs> you know? He says, Lord, I'll build tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. But then look at verse 5. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. You know, I mentioned at the beginning, you haven't made a mistake this week that was visible from space. Another thing to be grateful for, you haven't spoken so quickly, so rashly that God interrupted you and said, be quiet and listen. Peter, I'll, I'll build tents. And God says, no, 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 no. Listen to Jesus. Peter, you're not the one talking right now. Now, this statement by God the Father actually repeats what he said after Jesus' bad, baptism in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. And God the Father said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And yet, there's one more part added here that wasn't in Matthew 3, where he said, listen to him. Do you catch what God the Father is saying here about Jesus the Son? The Father testifies to the divinity of Jesus. He says, this is my beloved Son. He doesn't say, this is a good prophet. This is a wise, sage teacher. No, he says, this is my beloved Son. He states affirmation of Jesus in the work he came to do. He said, with whom I am well pleased. He is not a rebel who has gone off the reservation and is making me disappointed. No, he is my son with whom I am pleased. And then he makes no doubt as to the authority of Jesus. He says, what's he saying? Listen to him. Listen to him. And here's what we have to get as we see this. Remember, we see Jesus and we also see where we might be tempted to get him wrong. And so we insert ourselves into Peter's shoes here and we have to understand this. We don't know why Peter was suggesting that he build three tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. But in a desire to serve and even to honor Jesus, Peter actually got Jesus wrong. Do you realize it is possible for you to desire to do very, very, very good and admirable things in the name of Jesus and still have him wrong. You could work to feed the hungry. You could work to clothe the poor, to care for the sick or anything else in the name of Jesus. And yet if you do not know Jesus as God to whom your life is surrendered, you are devastatingly insufficient in your understanding of him. 
Listen to the reaction of these disciples. Peter, James, and John, when they hear the voice of God the Father make this pronouncement about God the Son, Jesus. Follow along in verse 5. He was still speaking. I'll pick up verse 5 so we get what's going on. He's still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. There is a precious mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ lifting your face from the dirt and telling you to not fear. And look at why he tells them to not fear. It says they lift up their eyes and look, they saw no one but Jesus only. They did not have to fear a thing because there is safety in the presence of Jesus and there is comfort in knowing that he is God in the flesh. I don't know what fears you have carried into Easter this year. But I know that you have some and I know that I do. The Lord Jesus Christ invites you and me to look upon him in the fullness of his divinity. And to hide yourself in the cleft of the rock of his love and of his power. Do you feel alone? Do you have sorrows or grief or fear that you don't know what to do with it? You don't know where to take it. All you know is that it feels too much for you. And yet you feel as if it is this weight that as you walk through each day is dragging you down and you can't shake it. May I invite you to bring these to Jesus. Maybe the first step in bringing these to Jesus is simply uh, uh, in your heart and in your mind uh, acknowledging Okay, I believe I can entrust these things. I believe I can entrust my life to Him. And now, Lord, help me to understand how to do that. If you'd like to know more about this Jesus, not only who was crucified and raised again, but this Jesus here in Matthew 17, I would love to speak with you more about Him after our service. Feel free to grab me by the arm and I'd love to speak with you or shoot me an email, however it may be. But with Moses and Elijah now gone and Jesus no longer transfigured, let's now walk down the mountain with him and let's understand that to know the life of Jesus at the bottom of the mountain, the one who was crucified and raised again, we must come from the top of the mountain, knowing the divine Jesus. So secondly, we see what Jesus has done and why we don't see it. Take note of some strange instructions by Jesus as we read on. Okay? Verse 9. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. I don't know about you, but this strikes me as odd. Um, Perhaps even as odd as anything that I read of what happens at the top of the mountain. 
Jesus is saying, okay, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised. The, the term Son of Man is a term loaded with meaning. In one sense, it means man or human, and it stands in contrast to the Son of God. In fact, something very powerful to note about this passage is God speaks of His Son at the first. Jesus refers to Him as the Son of Man in the second part. And so what this shows is that just as He is the Son of God, He is this Son of Man, which is this is language built upon the Old Testament, particularly in the book of Daniel. Uh, and uh, it describes this divine, mighty, exalted God figure who would accomplish the rescue and redemption of the people of God. The Son of Man would be the one who would vanquish the enemies of God's people. And so Jesus says, tell no one this until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. You have to think, like, James may have caught this scene on his, like, iPhone. And that would be something to put on on, on Facebook. Or that would be something to... to send to other people or to tell the newspaper about jesus this this religious figure who is starting to stir things up and starting to to uh teach in a way which we have not heard before he really is god and we've seen it but why would jesus want him to be silent because his work isn't done here's the thing the great rescue of his people that jesus would accomplish was not how his people in their day understood it. The people, the, the Jewish people, the people of Israel, they were under Roman occupation. That, and it was expected that a Messiah would come who would free them from their Roman occupiers, who would lead them out from under the thumb of Rome. But Jesus is saying that he is going to accomplish a defeat of a far greater enemy than Rome. He would vanquish and defeat death itself. So here's the thing about the wonder of our great need for God. We don't just need to see Him. We need Him to spiritually lift us up off the ground and set our eyes upon Him in ways in which we have never seen Him before. The Son of Man, Jesus, transfigured in supernatural glory. He would become the criminal who would come down the mountain and would be naked and beaten and crucified. The God at the top of the mountain condemned as a vile outlaw at the bottom of the mountain deserving death. So read on in verse 9 and following. And as they were coming down, Jesus said, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. In Jesus' day, Jewish scribes and teachers commonly taught that a prophet would come who would fulfill the very last words of the Old Testament. And so the very last words of the Old Testament were from the prophet Malachi, Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, where he promised to send Elijah, maybe not Elijah, the, the original Elijah, but once again, another prophet who would come to speak a message of life and redemption to the people of Israel. So Malachi 4, 5, and 6 says, Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So here is what's happening here. You might be checking out a little all these new names coming into the equation. Old Testament prophecy mentioned. Okay, what's happening here? A final prophet is said to who would be coming. 
before the day of God's judgment. And he would preach a message that would reorient the people of God away from their sin against God and towards God's love for one another and righteousness before him. And the disciples now recognize that Jesus is telling them that this final prophet has already come. It was the last prophet, John the Baptist, as we understand him. He came urging the people of Israel to repent of their hard-heartedness and their sin against God and to return to Him in faith and in trust and in obedience. But they would not turn to God. In fact, they killed John the Baptist. And as Jesus said, they would kill Him too. Verse 12, I tell you, Elijah has already come and they did not recognize Him, but did to Him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Those who, who lived at the same time as Jesus and sat under his teaching failed to recognize the one who stood before them and offered them life through himself. The message of Jesus is not easy to come to grips with. In fact, the words of Jesus are a life-giving medicine to some, but taste like poison to others. Even the assertion that Jesus is God and he is the only way to God flips many contemporary cultural sensibilities of ours upside down. Add to that what Jesus says about our own nature and we can respond in rejection or in repentance. But in fact, we are blinded by the ways in which we want Jesus to fix our lives. Yet we refuse the reality that he offers us new life. And is that in the boat that you are in today? You have ways in which if you could get a hearing with Jesus, you would tell him the manner in which you want him to fix your life, uncertain future that you'd like. Okay, Jesus, if you could make this work out, here's my three-year, five-year, ten-year plan. If you could just cause this all to work out, I don't think I'm asking too much, and we'll make it happen. But how often do you want Jesus to fix your life without recognizing that The manner by which he fixes us is by giving us new life. Jesus said his audience did not understand this. And lest we give ourselves to some form of chronological snobbery, thinking we are more uh, sensible than people 2,000 years ago, many of us also do not understand this. For many years, I did not understand this. In fact, the reason I did not understand this is because Rejecting Jesus is not because he's hard to understand, but it's because our hearts are unwilling to listen and to understand. You see, when you come before Jesus, he tells you that your greatest need is not to be released from the handcuffs of Rome, of which you want to be released. He tells you that your greatest need is to be freed from the straitjacket of your own sinful rebellion against him. And so the question that we must consider as we conclude today is lastly, or the thing that we must see is, That we've seen how we get Jesus wrong. We've seen what he does and how we get it wrong. We've seen what he has done in his cross and resurrection and how we don't see it. And lastly, with this understood, now let's see our total need for the true Jesus. You have now seen the true Jesus as presented here in Matthew 17. God in the flesh, divine in his glory, reigns over all things. The one to whom our Old Testaments look forward to and the one to whom we must submit ourselves under. And you've also seen our total need for him. You've seen the manner by which we are spiritually blinded to the point that we don't see him for who he is. 
In fact, that might be something that you are wrestling with right now. You are seeing claims about Jesus. You're seeing things that he says about him that perhaps you have grown up in church. You've spent a lifetime uh, in, in church or in spiritual settings and you're seeing things or you're hearing things that you have never heard before. And so the question you must ask yourself is, am I beginning to see Jesus for the first time in my life in ways in which maybe I have previously been blinded? I've only seen outlines of him, but not seen a full understanding of who he is and what he has done. And so will you come to him and will you ask him to allow you to cause you to see? To cause you not only to see him, the true Jesus, but also to see your total need for him. The reason in which we are spiritually blinded is because of our sin. You may have heard this term a few times today. Sin simply means our rebellion against God. Sometimes we can believe the lie that sin is just really evil, really bad things that really bad people do, like murder. I haven't murdered anyone. My sin is not as great as the guy who has. But Jesus actually tells us elsewhere in Matthew's gospel that if you harbor anger in your heart against somebody, that is just as bad as murdering them. You see, the reality that we see in Matthew's gospel, but as Matthew points us to Jesus, the thing that we see about Jesus is that he does not let us live with a false understanding of ourselves. He forces us to come to grips with the true reality of who we are, because knowing this, the truth of who we are, then enables us to see the truth of who he is and our desperate need for him and the divine grace that he gives us through himself. And so will you see that you are a sinner who is in need of Jesus? And then will you see that the Son of Man, the one who has come to vanquish the enemies of his people, vanquishes our sin and our death in his cross and in his resurrection? And will you look to him and live? Not will you look to him and ask him to help you to live a better life, but will you look to him and come to life? For coming to Jesus is not something where we come to him in appreciation, No, if you appreciate Jesus but nothing more, it is the wrong Jesus that you appreciate. We come to Jesus and we look upon him on that mountain and we stand in awe. But then we come and see him that came down that mountain and we see that this is the one who was crucified and died. The one who was transfigured, who could have walked away, who could have ascended to the throne of God the Father, who could have stepped out of it and who ruled and reigned over all things. Jesus Christ, the one who has existed for eternity past and even created you and me, is the one who came down the mountain and suffered in your place and in mine. That is the wonder of Easter. The one who died was not a false teacher who who got on the wrong side of the Roman authorities. The one who died is the one who created the Roman authorities and who exposes us in the falseness of our belief. The one who was resurrected is not somebody who is a fairy tale uh, who we look to and and who we believe in with some kind of gleeful awe and and a hope that maybe he could speak to our lives, but knowing we will re-enter Monday tomorrow in the hardness and the firmness of a life lived in this world. No, the resurrected Jesus is the one who rules over and who has in fact inaugurated a new world and a new life where he promises not just to be with us on today, on Easter Sunday, but the resurrection is still true and still real on Monday. And he invites us to come to him. And he would not let the disciples publicize this until he had accomplished his work. And the work that perhaps he has left to accomplish for you and in you is causing you to have now heard this. And now will you respond to him in repentance of your sin and in surrender before him?
That is the option. That is the opportunity. That is the realization that we all must grapple with at Easter. When you look at Jesus on top of the mountain and you look at Jesus naked on the cross, you realize that casualness is no option. May we surrender to Christ and may we look to him and live. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are glorious in your divine nature and in your divine might. And you reign over all things. You are risen and you rule. And Lord, I pray you would help all of us to give great thought, not passing thought, but great thought to the reality of all that you have accomplished and who you are that has accomplished these things. And let us respond accordingly. Let us respond in worship and perhaps for some, even in submission and surrender before you for the very first time. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.